And all God's people said, Amen. I usually don't comment on the music, but is that just about as close to an angelic choir as one will ever hear or see in human form? Our text comes from another angelic choir. Uh, it is the verses that are perhaps, uh, perhaps the verses just before this in the second chapter of Luke are even more familiar to us, but uh, following that, this is one of the most familiar passages of the Christmas season. We look at the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke, verses 10 to 14. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were greatly afraid. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to people upon whom his favor rests. Father, may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Savior and our Redeemer. According to the angelic choir, Jesus Christ was born into this world, born a baby, born a child, to bring peace. That's what the angels say, that's what they are singing about, and our question this morning for this message is, what does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus came to bring peace? What on earth was he trying to bring, and what is this peace on earth? Now, one effective way to tackle a problem of meaning is to start by saying what it isn't, what it doesn't say. So let's start by saying quickly what the angels are not saying. At the outset, this peace on earth that the angels bring is, with just a short examination of Scripture, clearly not what every contestant in a beauty pageant wishes for, world peace, international peace, political peace. We might want to say that Christianity has made the world a more humane place, a more peaceful place, a safer place to live. That is a thesis that I would be willing and interested in defending in a debate, and I think most people would probably agree with it. Some would disagree. It's a debatable point. But one point on which I think all people would agree is that we live in a world of great violence and great oppression and great warfare and great bloodshed. There is and always has been a tremendous amount of wars everywhere. And when we look back on the last 2,000 years, I think it would be a fairly 
uncontended thesis that the last hundred years have been the most violent and full of warfare, probably the worst of all. Therefore, if what the angels meant was that Jesus Christ had come to rid us of disaster and oppression and warfare and bloodshed, then we would probably have the right to say that Christianity has had 2,000 years to accomplish that and has failed. But Scripture nowhere makes that claim. As a matter of fact, it assiduously avoids it. It goes to different places. Twice in the same gospel, the gospel of Luke, Jesus says something quite different. Luke 21, I wonder why this isn't read more regularly during the Christmas season. His disciples come to Jesus and ask, what will be the signs of the end of the age? And Jesus says, when you hear of wars and revolutions, see to it that you are not surprised. These things must happen. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Jesus is saying you should never, ever expect in this age, in this time, warfare to cease. It won't. It's his promise. This is Jesus saying to the very, very end of this age and this time, if anything, warfare is going to get worse. He's clearly saying, don't expect the result of my birth to be world peace. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians aren't supposed to work for peace and be peacemakers. Jesus clearly said, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus does say that Christians are to work to make peace. But what we see here is the peace on earth the angels are talking about is not international or political. Jesus says, never expected. Again, in Luke's Gospel, the 12th chapter this time. Jesus says, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No. I tell you, not that, but division. From now on, they will be divided. Father against son, mother against daughter. I have come to bring fire on the earth. Again, we need to be careful what he's saying and he's not saying. He does not say. He has come to divide nations. What Jesus does say, if I come into your life, there's going to be discomfort. There's going to be disturbance. There's going to be personal conflict, father and son, within families. You may find people that you used to get along with that you don't don't get along with anymore. I came to bring fire on the earth. There will be conflict. There will be people mad at you. There will be people that don't understand you. There will be people that say uncomfortable things about you. When Jesus comes into your life, the promise is things can get messy. So Jesus says there's also a tremendous amount of warfare that comes, a tremendous amount of disturbance and conflict, whatever the angels are singing about, it is not world peace. Leaves are falling. I have been raking my yard. I've made a little bit of dent on it, so it clears a little bit of the debris away so that you can see a little bit of the grass underneath. That's what I hope we've done so far. Cleared a little bit of the debris away of what's not involved here. Let's go to three points that are involved. What are the angels singing about when they sing about peace on earth? Well, in the first place, the way we we hear this passage uh, is often mistranslated. Our ears are used to, my ears are used to, I love the King James sound of peace on earth, goodwill towards men, towards people. Peace on earth, goodwill. 
towards men. Now, it's almost universally recognized by commentators that that comes from a, a mistranslation of a word which means favor or goodwill, and it's used, it's translated in the King James with the accusative rather than the genitive. That's enough of that. Let's move on. But in, <laughs> but in other words, rather than goodwill towards men, it should be translated peace towards people to whom God has goodwill and on whom his favor rests. So the cash value of that, the payout is, is there are people towards whom God has ill will and the gospel brings goodwill towards them. So there are three positive insights here. In the first place, the peace on earth about which the angels sing isn't peace between us. It's primarily peace with God. It's turning the ill will that we have towards God and he has towards us, or the wrath that we've been looking at Romans, towards goodwill. Romans 5 reads, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ died for our sins. He went to the cross that we might have peace made with God. Peace is wrought by the blood of Christ. Christ made peace by the shedding of his blood. So the war that exists between you and me and the Heavenly Father, the triune God, has been brought to rest, has been made peaceful by the blood of his Son. In Charles Wesley's great hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the very first line says, Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. There's the answer. Peace on earth is mercy mild. It's God and sinners at war one with another, now reconciled. Romans 8 says, No one, because of the blood shed by Christ, is able to separate you if you depend upon it, upon the love of of God which is made available in Christ Jesus our Lord. We have entered into a new relationship, which isn't relative, which isn't hopeful. It's absolute and permanent and real. It's peace with God. And our status before God isn't transitory. That our, our relationship with him is as pure and unbroken and unsullied in the moment we receive it as it will be in a million and in a zillion years from now. That's the gospel. And that is good, great news. And most people don't understand it. Most people sitting in pews don't understand it. If you don't understand that great promise. Most people think religion is something we work our very best to get in better favor with God. If you don't understand the claim of the gospel, you might reject it, you might hate it, but if you don't understand it, you don't even, you don't even have a basis from which you can reject it intelligently. Christianity, the gospel, offers peace on earth because it offers peace with God. Absolute, total, perfect, and among all world religions, that promise is unique. Our main problem isn't ignorance, so that we need more information. It isn't indifference, so that we need more motivation. It's hostility. Peace with God means that we have been redeemed, rescued, reconciled, made one. Last night, along with the choir and others, we ministered and were ministered to by the inmates at San Quentin. It's always 
it's always an encouraging time to be with them and to be ministered to by them. And I spoke on reconciliation. And I said that's a problem for a preacher because there's six syllables to the word. Just articulating it tends to put people to sleep. Reconciliation. I shared uh, one of the theologians I'm most fond of as a writer by the name of Van Hooser, and one of our students, uh, particularly perplexed by density and preponderance from to say things over and over and over again, said, well, I'm sorry you had us read Van Snoozer this week. And one of my students was talking to him at a recent as a recent conference and said, I just couldn't get that out of my mind. I'm talking to Van Snoozer, Van Snoozer, Van Snoozer. So how do we talk on reconciliation without putting each other to sleep? And I, I thought, well, let's translate it. It's peace with God. It's, it's making enemies one. It's, it's forging a highway home. It's becoming together. It's in the word of the, 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 the books of one of our authors in this congregation present here, becoming one. Those are great translations, but... Then I remember how God had worked in my life. I gave my life to Christ at age 10, but it wasn't my college years that I realized that the stakes of life were really life and death in which Christ took me to a deeper level. I was on a college retreat, and we'd done whitewater canoeing during the day, so we were battered and bruised and tired. And at the end of the day, we were around a campfire, and there was a Presbyterian minister, graduate of Princeton Seminary, who was answering fielding questions by this college group, and most of them were hostile and negative. I had a I had a twofold experience. They were asking, "How can there be a good God in an evil world? How can the universe be? How do we know that God has spoken and the universe isn't silent?" Good questions. And so now, I almost had an out of body experience. I looked around and I said, "You know, those are good questions. They're valuable questions. We all need to ask them and and answer them." But if these were being asked authentically, I would be seeing a hurt on people's faces rather than smiles. Why are people smiling, asking these questions? The universe could be empty. We could be lost and alone and silent. But if that's true, it's an awful answer. People are asking these questions with a smile on their lips because they want to keep a personal God at bay. If he's there and demanding something of them, then my life has changed. I have to answer to someone. My life has to be different. That was the negative experience. But at the same time, and they kind of happened simultaneously, I didn't hear anything or see anything, but the best words I have to express it is that I heard and I saw the risen Christ. I remember the question was, what are our resurrection bodies going to be like? And Roger Hull was his name, went to uh, 1 Corinthians 15. But you're riding on the top of that, on the top of his answer. I heard and saw the risen Christ say to me, John, you, you have believed in me and you always have believed in me. But you've allowed some pathetic attempt, I was a freshman at college, some pathetic attempt to become sophisticated and try to help me along by the best of learning. Now, the best of everything can be laid at the altar of Christ and can be used to praise him. And we should do that, but they don't help him. He doesn't need it. I thought my parents' faith and the church I came from, I loved it, but, you know, it was a little bit dusty. It could brush it up, and I was the person to do it. And Christ said to me, John, you have allowed some pathetic attempt to become sophisticated. And here's the phrase as I heard it. 
rob you of what the joy of life with me is all about. And I recognize that's reconciliation. Life with Him. The joy of life with Him being His. Peace with God. That's the first meaning. There's a second. There's a peace of God. There's not only this absolute, perfect, objective peace. There is an inner subjective peace. Peace of God. Paul said, be anxious for nothing. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. It doesn't mean that we won't have struggles or conflicts or turmoils or troubles, but it does mean that whatever the circumstances or call or duty, whatever the price, his strength is available in hours of difficulty. I know where I've come from. I know why I'm here. I know where I'm going. And because of that, we can have peace of heart, the peace of God. In Christ, we can be relaxed and at peace even in the midst of confusions and bewilderments and perplexities. Storms can rage, but we can be at rest. Paul said, in whatsoever state I find myself therein, I have learned to be content. That's the peace of God. George MacDonald is one of the great Christian writers. And I remember this quote of his. He says, kind of fleshing out Paul's insight. I would, if I may, be ever greeted in my study in winter by a glowing hearth and in the summer by a bowl of flowers. Isn't that a great picture of what you'd study by fire in winter and a bowl of flowers in summer? But then he writes, but if not, then let me think how nice they would have been and let me bury myself in my work. And then he explains that. I think that contentment lies in knowing what you have got, namely Christ, and not in despising what you have not got. Some of us are going through loss right now. One of our beloved members, the loss of her father, Tanner Smurl, the loss of her father. I'm walking through the loss of a beloved friend, Clive Hovard in Wales, who is my last conversation with him, said, I hope to stand in six months in this church, in this spot, and thank your people for praying for me. Um, Many of us are grieving the loss of Toby Clark, who has ministered to us several times in this church. I remember when I walked through the loss of my parents within six weeks of each other. Never before I had such an intense loss. I was surprised and overwhelmed by twin emotions, great grief, and great gratitude, both large and small. I don't know how I would have walked through that time. I don't know how people walk through difficult times without Christ and how I could have walked through that time without gratitude, the confidence that despite the loss, that that loss is not the last word, not the final word, not the only word. We have grief, which is a tribute to loss, and gratitude, and yes, in Christ, even gladness, peace. Real peace comes from fellowship with Christ. We have peace with God. We have objective. We have inner peace, the peace of God. There is one last sense that I think Scripture holds. There is a peace in God, a future peace. 
There will, of course, be a peace for those who have died in Christ. We speak of rest in peace as an expression that our culture regularly uses for all those who have died. But the Bible teaches it is an idle wish except for those who have died in Christ. I had a brilliant student, a former hippie, who came to Golden Gate Seminary. He's now a pastor in the Reno area. And uh, as I got to know him and I got to know his testimony, I asked how he had come to Christ. What was the, It's always the work of the Holy Spirit, what the human instrumentality was. And he said, well, I was looking for answers. And so in looking for answers, I searched through every world religion. And I said, Paul, you know, if I had a penny for every person I know that has said that, uh, it has always meant before meeting you that I'll look every place except the Christian faith. I'll look for other options and other answers, but I'll avoid this. You included Christianity in what you examined. Why? I don't know people like you that have done that. So you want to know? Yes, that's why I'm asking. He said, well, you see, I and my wife are both nurses and whenever someone passes and the family isn't in the room we don't let anybody come in until the body has been arranged and that was my responsibility and I was kind of a specialist in that I was sent in and I could not ignore the fact of the difference of the way in which people died who I knew were Christians and the way people died who weren't I had to rearrange the features. I had to take grimaces off the face. But people almost without exception who died in Christ died with a calm expression, with a look of peace, with contentment. I couldn't ignore that. That's a personal future peace. There also is a corporate one. Revelation 6 talks of a red horse who is given power to take peace from the earth. We can have personal peace at death. We will have corporate peace at the end of history. We're not going to have peace, permanent peace, until the Prince of Peace comes. And he is coming. We heard that promise last week in Isaiah. It was read for us again This Sunday, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. What a wonderful day that will be. Peace on earth. Goodwill among those upon whom his favor rests. At Christmas time, we ought to wonder at that. So my question, is that the wonder of your life? Is that what makes Christmas Wonderful. There's an amazing place in First Peter. It's just almost a, a parenthetical phrase, but I've always loved it. It says the gospel. It talks. Peter talks about the gospel into which the angels long to look. The angels are great beings, yet we are told that angels relentlessly and passionately never tire of looking at or rejoicing in or studying or reflecting in the gospel, the good news. You've never seen angels say the gospel. Sure, I understand the gospel. Now let's go on and move to something deeper. The angels know there is nothing deeper. There is nothing more glorious 
Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. The angels don't get over it. They never get over it. The reason that you and I who have trusted in Christ worry so much and have anxiety so much and find forgiveness so difficult is that we've gotten over it. We no longer wonder at it. But Christmas is the pointer. It's the pointer that tells us here is God. Here is what he has done for you. And he's in charge of the world. And you have gotten over it. But take your cue from the angels. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace. Don't get over that. Never get over that. Because God in Christ has never gotten over you. Living in holy God. Thank you for showing us what peace is in all its dimensions. And when we look at it clearly, we know it's a gift that in part insults us. When we look at it clearly, we see the reason we need your peace is because there's ill will between us and we need your grace. Father, I pray that those of us who are here who have taken up your peace and have gotten over it, might become wiser people. Let us hear from the angels, God and sinners reconciled. Maybe the reason the angels are so beautiful and so radiant and so great is because they haven't gotten over the gospel. Father, this Christmas, make us beautiful and radiant. We ask that you would enable us to never stop singing the angels' song. Make us great through it. We pray this in Jesus' name.